Now for tonight, we want to finish up on this, which is the second of a series of things that we are looking at in the book of Acts relative to the subject of discipleship. We already have seen the spirit in discipleship, the relationship of the ministry of the Spirit of God to the disciples and their ministry. We saw that they were utterly dependent upon the ministry of the Spirit of God if they were to be successful in their ministry. And then we began to talk about salvation and the disciple. And we said at the beginning that there really were three things that were involved, and we've only seen one of them. Well, first it was the condition of uh, the conditions of salvation, and then the second thing, the consequences, and thirdly, the constraints. And Lord willing, we'll finish up on those last two tonight. Just by way of review, though, we saw that the conditions of salvation were, uh, were really one, but there were several points under that. We saw that there was a faith that was not unto salvation, uh, such as uh, Simon the sorcerer and uh, King Agrippa. They believed, at least they believed something concerning facts, but they did not trust in Jesus Christ. So there is a faith or a belief that is not unto salvation. It's possible for people to intellectually accept historical facts without personally receiving Jesus Christ as Savior. Secondly, saving faith must be in Jesus Christ. He is the only object of our faith, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. All of the instances of faith in the book of Acts, in that historical record of the early church, it was always faith in Christ, faith in the finished work of Christ, the fact of his resurrection, and uh, the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior. We said as well that the message was made known through disciples. God could have used angels. He could have used uh, uh, skywriting if he'd wanted to. He used uh, handwriting on the wall in the time of, of uh, Belshazzar, the time of Daniel. Uh, God could communicate to man any way he wished. But he chose to use men. And even as Christ had said to his disciples that they were called to be with him and to go forth. And so therefore, we are those that have called, been called as disciples of Christ to be with him. And we also are sent forth. And then, fourthly, the act of believing is by grace. And thus, it's rooted in the eternal counsels of God. God has stated unequivocally that even the ability we have to trust him for salvation is that which comes by grace. And therefore, God takes the initiative. And man simply responds to that stimuli that the Lord gives to us. The fifth thing was that a synonym for faith is repentance. That the changing of mind concerning Jesus Christ cannot really be separated from faith. But the, the concept is that of changing of mind. It does not necessarily imply, though obviously uh, it's, it's generally included, the, the change of a life. It's the idea of the change of mind that takes place. That's what repentance means. The change of life, of course, comes as a result of changing the mind. And so therefore, a lot of people think of repentance as being uh, the changing of a life. But you can see that a person who is unsaved, if he does not, if, if he tries to change his life before he knows Jesus Christ and has the power of the Holy Spirit living in him, it is futile. No way he can change his life and thus be acceptable to God. And that's the way repentance is sometimes taught. But in the book of Acts, it's taught very clearly that repentance is a change of mind. 
and the change of mind and the faith really are synonymous terms. And so it's not a condition or prerequisite or even a just consequence of salvation, but a vital part of faith. And then last week we spent the whole time in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts and we saw that faith alone is sufficient for salvation. We went to the Council of Jerusalem and we saw how the men there wrestled with the question, how much of the Jewish law do men have to maintain in order to truly be right with God? How, how much do they have to follow the tradition of the elders in order to truly have a relationship with Christ? The result of that counsel was this. They came to the conclusion that there was only one means of salvation and uh, that was faith and faith alone. There is no other means of salvation. There's no other part to salvation. That indeed, as Paul wrote to the Roman Christians, that, that when you add works to grace, you nullify grace. When you add grace to works, you nullify works. The two are mutually exclusive. You can't have half of one and half of another, or 99% of one and 1% of another. If you have any works added to grace, it is no longer grace, but is works. And so therefore, we are saved by grace through faith. And faith is not a work. Faith is a response of the heart to the grace of God. And so faith alone is sufficient. Now in this pivotal passage, however, they did stress one thing. That for the sake of fellowship, for the sake of fellowship with those Jews who were, were uh, concerned about the, the Gentile practices, there were a number of restrictions that they put on the church, not as a burden, but as a matter of love. And those, those restrictions were these. Abstain from the pollution of idols. Abstain from the pollution of idols, something that was abhorrent to a Jewish person. Secondly, abstain from fornication, which was the, the marriage restrictions of Leviticus 18. Fornication was that which primarily to those Jews would mean the idea of incest because they were not to marry the next of kin, a practice which, by the way, was uh, done among Gentiles and uh, thought, they thought nothing of it. But to the Jew, it was abhorrent. And then thirdly, abstain from things strangled and from blood. That is, they, of course, were offended uh, by, because the, the Old Testament teaching of life in the flesh being in the blood, they were offended by uh, such uh, practices as, as uh, the making of blood meat and uh, this sort of thing. And so for the sake of, of friendship, for the sake of fellowship, uh, they asked that those believers in those heavily Jewish populations abstain from those things. Now, mind you, uh, they are not laying down those restrictions as an eternal thing. It is simply a matter that we must always recognize that there are certain cultural practices that may be legitimate to the person who has freedom in Christ that may be offensive to a weaker brother and therefore, we should be very, very careful that of, of those kind of what are termed in other places doubtful things or doubtful disputations. And they're doubtful uh, in the sense that the, that the Jews felt that they were inherently harmful. But when it came to things like circumcision 
the keeping of feasts and this sort of thing, that was not to be done. Uh, that was not something that you were to restrict a Gentile concerning. And so that was the argument then in regard to the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. And has to do then with the condition of salvation. And we get right down to the bottom line. It's faith and faith alone. Nothing else. You do not add works at all. But you do, out of expedience and for the sake of fellowship, limit your freedom. Be willing to do that no matter what the issue may be involved. All right, now the second thing that we want to see is the consequences of salvation. And they are at least three in number as taught in the book of Acts. If you'll look with me at the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, you will see the first consequence of salvation. And we find it in verse 48. Now, when we, when we see the uh, passage here, beginning about verse 44, we see that the, the Jews were standing up in opposition to the Apostle Paul because uh, the Gentiles were turning in mass uh, here at Antioch. They were turning in mass to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, so it says in verse 44, the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. And when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spoke against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Now the word envy there is zeluo. Um, it's uh, Z E. L-U-O, and uh, we get our word zeal from this, but in this particular context, it has the idea of the feeling of displeasure because of another person's success. They were moved with this feeling of displeasure because someone was, in a sense, stealing their thunder. They were the people that were known to be religious leaders. They were uh, getting their fair share of uh, converts uh, to proselytes to the Jewish faith, and now they had some very real competition. The Jews, of course, realized that there was no, um, no opportunity for forgiveness of sins from the pagan idols. And uh, so therefore they capitalized on that. And they did have a few, not a few, even more than a few uh, converts to Judaism. And so there was the need uh, or the, the desire on their part to get rid of this uh, infestation that had come in the persons of Paul and Barnabas. And so then it says, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, that is to the Jew, for that was the order, as we know from the 16th verse, the first chapter of Romans, that was the order. But it says, but seeing ye put it from you, that is they rejected the gospel, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. You have rejected Christ. In the process, you have rejected eternal life. Keep that in the back of your mind for a moment because that is the key issue involved in this first consequence of salvation. Verse 47, For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the nations, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. Now, I think we need to back up just a moment. From the very beginning... And we learned this in our survey of the book of Genesis. The purpose of the nation of Israel was a missionary purpose. God did not put them 
in the best culture of their day, which was Ur of Chaldees, nor did he put them in the culture that was uh, at least uh, uh, open to the idea of, uh, of, of one God. They, he put them among the Canaanites. And the Canaanites of the three cultures, the Egyptian and the Chaldean, the Canaanitish culture was the worst of the three cultures. Absolutely the worst. And God called Abraham out of what was the best culture of his day, brought, them into, brought him into the worst culture of the day, because his purpose from the call of Abraham to the time of Jesus Christ was that the nation of Israel might be a missionary nation. They failed in that mission. But Paul reminds them that one of their major purposes was that they might be a light of the nations, of the Gentiles, that they should be for salvation of the ends of the earth. Now verse 48 then. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now, the word ordained there is tasso, and it has to do with setting something in rank. It was a military term, and it meant to bring people under proper command, under the proper rank, and to, to set them in proper order. And so it's saying here, again, indicating the eternal counsels and purposes of God in regard to election. It is saying, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So the first consequence of the matter of salvation is that of eternal life. That's the first consequence. Now, in the purposes and counsels of God... Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the earth, and he purposed that all who put trust in him would be ordained unto eternal life. And the idea of Jesus Christ being the elect one, and those who are in Christ becoming a part of the elect, is of course the key to the whole issue here. But the point is that eternal life was indeed one of the consequences of salvation. Then if you will go back in the same chapter, you will see another consequence of salvation. Back at verse 39. Now this is a part of the message that the Apostle Paul is giving to the people. And uh, he says in verse 39, And by him, now this is after he's talked about David couldn't possibly have fulfilled uh, the uh, Psalms that were written concerning uh, the Lord and written concerning Christ, particularly the idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, which is seen so clearly in uh, where it says in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning he that raised him from the dead, now more, no more can return to corruption, he said in this way, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore, he also saith in another psalm, that is, in Psalm 16 and verse 10, Thou shalt not allow thy Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he, whom God raised again, that would be Jesus Christ, saw no corruption. Now look at verses 38 and 39. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all 
that believe are justified. Justified. Justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, the concept of justification is that it's a legal term which means that a man is placed in right standing with God. It's not a matter of uh, him having a partial standing, but given a full and complete pardon and a complete reinstatement in his fellowship with Almighty God. Forgiveness of sins, of course, is integrally linked to that as well. Necessary for God to forgive our sins in order that we could have that standing before God. We are in Christ forgiven and totally and completely justified. Now, when I was younger, um, someone told me that you could remember justification by the fact that it's just as if you never sinned. But, you know, there's more to it than that. It's a far greater issue than merely the fact that we are made as if we had never sinned. For we are given a legal standing in Christ that is absolutely flawless and perfect. We stand in His righteousness, not in our own righteousness. And so therefore, justification is a very vital and important thing. And remember that Christ was raised not for our justification, as we read it in the King James, but rather on account of our justification. Get this. Jesus Christ played to the full his options. He died for our sins. If God the Father had not been willing to take that stand of justification, it would have been demonstrated by the fact that Jesus Christ could not have risen from the dead. Well, that's a big issue. But we are justified by faith. But now Paul says you're justified from that which the law could never justify. Now, why couldn't the law justify people from their sin? Well, Because the law could only condemn. The only person that the law could not condemn was Jesus Christ. He was the only one who was totally justified. That is, he never broke the law. But we violate it all the time. And when we see the stringent requirements of the law, we realize that there is no possible way that we could be justified by the works of the law. You see, men get the idea that it's sort of a balance scale situation. That if my good deeds and my bad deeds balance out, then God is going to say, what a good boy you are. But you see, if God did that, then he would fail to be just. Now, because of this, as the book of Romans says, God had to be just, and at the same time, the justifier. How could he do both? How could he save sinners? The answer is not balancing the scale by doing good works as opposed to bad works, because in the first place, we'd never catch up if that were the case. In the second place, God would have to, uh, he would have to compromise his own character, which is impossible, in order to save us. So what God had to do was take all of our bad works and lay them upon Jesus Christ as he hung upon the cross, 
and take all of the good goodness of Christ, all of his righteousness, and apply that to our account so that we are made perfect in Jesus Christ and we have a standing before him. So that's justification. The third thing is, let's give you three passages to look at. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, Peter's great sermon, first of all. And let me go over this quickly. I will go back to this in a moment. So the question that will arise in your mind when I read this verse, we'll catch it in just a moment, all right? Just look at one thing, though. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Incidentally, that very question indicates their response of faith already. Then Peter said unto them, repent. Notice that. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for... Now, incidentally, the preposition here is ace which really is because of, that is, it's the basis and the ground for, for remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now just notice that little phrase, because of the remission of sins. Look at chapter 10 and verse 43. Chapter 10, verse 43. To him gave all the prophets witness. This is Peter now at Caesarea talking, of course, uh, to those in relationship to Cornelius' salvation. And so it says, To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, that is the name of Jesus Christ, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. All right? Look at chapter 22. Chapter 22 and verse 16. Paul's told about his, telling about his salvation. And it says, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. All right? Now, once again, wash away thy sins is the same concept as remission of sins. When Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, he made provision not only that we could have eternal life, not only that we could be justified, but also that there might be the remission. Remission of sin. That is another consequence of salvation. It's something that takes place because a person has trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, in each case, or in two out of those three cases, it made mention of the concept of baptism. And I want to go back to that in just a second and make clear what those passages are saying concerning the matter of baptism. But let me say that salvation is by faith and faith alone. I've already shown that. And salvation brings eternal life, brings justification, and brings redemption. Now, mind you, 
When we get to the epistles, we find there's a lot more involved than just those things. But as far as the early church was concerned, as far as the book of Acts was concerned, in the regard to the disciples, these were things that were made very clear historically to them. Now, that then is the consequence of salvation. But right away, we want to talk about the constraints of salvation, if you will. The constraints. And this also is a very important part of the ministry of the disciples there in the early church. The very first constraint that we are touched with is the constraint to be baptized. Now in every recorded instance of salvation, there was at least the implication that the believers were baptized. The baptism was done in the name of Jesus Christ. And don't let that throw you. There are some people here uh, in this community and around the country who are a part of a group that used to be called Jesus Only. Now is called something else. In some case, some places they're called the Apostolic Church. In some places they're called something else. And they claim that a person isn't saved unless he's baptized. And that he's not really saved and baptized unless he's baptized in the name of Jesus. And uh, they spurn the idea of uh, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because they do not believe there is a Father or a Holy Spirit, but rather that Jesus Christ is the Father and He is the Son and He is the Holy Spirit. They are not Trinitarians. They do not believe it, that God is, is one in three. They believe that Jesus Christ is God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And um, it's really a fouled-up doctrine. And, uh, but you see, a part of that is based upon the historical record uh, that they baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But you see, you do not separate the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Christ said they are to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when they baptize in the book of Acts, it records, Luke records, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Implied, of course, is that the baptismal formula was involved. It's just an implication all the way through. And it's the language and the terminology that Luke used in reporting it. And just as we have in the, in the uh, gospel accounts, uh, consistency on the part of those that report it and additional information given from other passages of the Scripture. What you have to do is compare Scripture with Scripture, and you come to the conclusion that it's not a matter of what we say in the baptismal tank that is important, but rather that there is faith in Jesus Christ and that God the Father, God the Holy Spirit are also participants in the whole process. That can be proven many times over by a study of the entire New Testament. So in any, any event, it was done in the name of Jesus Christ as recorded in the book of Acts. It always meant one thing. That is, it meant identification. That's what baptism means. Now, we're not trying to get in a fight with anybody tonight over the mode of baptism or meaning of baptism or anything else. But since the word means that, to identify with then, therefore, we can't avoid the fact that that's what it meant. It meant, in essence, an outward, outward picture of identification that people had with Jesus Christ. Now, we're, 
we could take a long time talking about the implications of that. Let me just give you one. And that is that when a person dies, that is when a person is, is saved, he dies with Christ. That is, he experiences identification with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Baptism merely speaks to that issue. It merely illustrates. I often, when I'm teaching a baptismal class, will show people a picture of my family. And I'll say, this is my family. Is that a correct statement? And some people will say, yes, that's your family. And others will say, no, that's not your family. And it's the technical people that I'm after. I say, well, what do you mean it's not my family? It's a picture of your family, precisely. There are two kinds of baptism. There's real baptism. That's what took place the instant you received Jesus Christ as Savior. There's ritual baptism. That's what took place when you publicly acknowledge your real baptism by picturing it. It's one thing to look at a picture and kiss it, you know. That's not too gratifying, but it's a lot of fun to kiss my wife in real live flesh, you know. So that's the difference. And uh, the real baptism is what really puts you into, because the word baptize means to put into, to place into, or to identify with. And so therefore, real baptism places you into Christ, places you into the body of Christ. And the ritual baptism merely is an illustration. When a person is baptized, though, there is, there is something that takes place. First of all, it speaks of his position in Christ. And it also speaks of his experience. His position is you're perfect in Christ, you're a saint, you are uh, in every way uh, prepared and fit for heaven and have a full inheritance and all of the good things that we talk about when we talk about justification, redemption, uh, salvation, forgiveness of sins, remission of sins, and so on and so forth. All of that has to do with the position we have in Christ. In our daily experience, however, there is still the, the potential for sin, simply because we still have an old sin nature, an old sin nature that God has condemned. Before we were saved, we only had one nature. After we're saved, we have two natures. That old sin nature is that which judicially and positionally was condemned at the cross. But as far as the experience is concerned, we still have the flesh wrestling against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, so you cannot do the things that you would. That is, you can't relax your guard because you can be led very quickly into sin. But the interesting and fascinating thing is that when Jesus Christ died for the cross, on the cross, Jesus Christ did not only die for your sins. And baptism helps illustrate this. A lot of people have the notion that Christ died on the cross for their sins. And when they think of their sins, they're thinking of all the bad things they ever did. The marvelous truth is that when Christ died on that cross, he died not only for your sins, the things we call sins, but everything that God calls sins. And do you know what he calls sins? Your righteousnesses. He died even for your righteousness. He died for all you tried to be in seeking to reach God. He died for all of your vain efforts in the flesh. He died for all that you were as a sinner. Condemned before God not only because you sinned, but because you came short of the glory of God. No matter how hard you might have tried to be a saint, you couldn't be a saint because that required a change of position. You were made 
perfect in Jesus Christ. And so baptism teaches us that we are identified with Christ in his death. And therefore, you know what we say when we're baptized? We say, I died with Christ. And I died to two things. I died to those things that men deem sins. That is, those things that from evaluation we could say would be sins. That is, the weakness of the old sin nature. But I also die to the strength of my old sin nature. Therefore, I reckon myself to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. For the old sin nature has an inherent weakness to try by good works, by asceticism, by, by uh, 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 good uh, charitable things and all of this, to try somehow to please God. That was the inherent factor involved in the unbeliever. That's why we have so many wonderful unbelievers. Because they have an extremely strong old sin nature that happens to to move in the direction of trying to do good works. Then we have others that are trying to do bad works. And it suits Satan to have a combination in some cases, or to have one who has an emphasis on one, or one that has an emphasis on another. So we have liars and cheaters and murderers, and we have good people that go to church every week and, and never swear and, and never do anything wrong, and they're kind to their neighbors. And you know what? That, su- that suits Satan because Satan points at that person and he says, How could God ever condemn a person like that? He's so good. Ever hear that argument? That's why Satan has people like that. So there'll be that kind of an argument available. But the difference is, or I should say the, the, the whole focus of the thing is, that no matter how, how good that person may be, has he ever goofed once? Oh, well, of course, I, nobody's perfect. And you hear that too, don't you? Too bad, God requires perfection. Well, then I have no hope, precisely. No hope, apart from what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross. Because Christ died not only for your sins as we see sin, but for your righteousnesses, for God calls them filthy rags. Christ died for all you were. Now, when you you are baptized then, you identify, or that is, you illustrate the identification you have with Christ. And when you are raised, then you illustrate that you are raised with Christ. Well, now get this. And this is a place a lot of Christians go wrong. Because you see, if we think of our old sin nature, as I've said, one side of it strong, the other side weak. Over here we have what we would term sins. Over here is what we can term self-righteousness, all right? And so we have sins on this side and self-righteousness on this side. And there are good many Christians who recognize that when Christ died for their sins, he died for this part, and they, they, they quit. You know, in the power of God's Holy Spirit, they quit lying and cheating and killing and all the things they used to do. But they never learn that the self-righteous side of the old sin nature continues, even though the the weak side of the old sin nature tries to get us to do wrong things too. But the, the, the other side, many times Satan, it suits his purpose to get us to be just as self-righteous as we possibly can. And there's the same danger of being self-righteous in relationship to a Christian as there is in relationship to the unbeliever. We have to realize that when we rose with Christ, we rose to new life, which means that we do not live after the flesh whatsoever. We must not, 
this. When we do, when we choose to willfully choose to follow the dictates of the old sin nature, then we fail, and we fail to glorify God because we're not walking in the Spirit. Now, we've said all that to lead up to this. The only proper mode that illustrates this is immersion. And there's every proof in the world, if you want them, we could dig them up for you, that immersion was the mode of baptism in the early church. Effusionism, which came along much later, um, is, is a, in a sense a rather recent, about the time of Constantine, was the first Effusionism, and uh, there are some uh, traditions that, that lead to uh, the fact that perhaps, uh, con uh, perhaps Constantine himself was the first person on his deathbed to be sprinkled because of a misconception of the terms of salvation. And uh, so therefore, we, we have even Martin Luther, who is probably one of the uh, greatest effusionists, who said, in essence, uh, that, uh, that baptism uh, by sprinkling is much more convenient, though the mode of the New Testament was that of immersion. And so he chose uh, sprinkling on the basis of its convenience. Now, I'm not going to argue the point, I, because salvation is not predicated on whether you're sprinkled, poured, dipped, drowned, or anything else. It's uh, dependent entirely upon faith in Jesus Christ. And so I don't believe that we should make any issue over the, over the matter. Uh, but uh, you all know me well enough to know my conviction is to baptize by immersion. In any event, the basis for baptism in the, in the book of Acts was always salvation. And Acts chapter 2 is a rather confusing passage. But I want you to look at it with me for a moment. Maybe you want to make a couple notes in your margin, in your Bibles, so that you don't forget this, all right? First of all, remember that it says, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now the question indicates the belief. It indicates faith already, or the, the growing of faith. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, which we've already seen, is a synonym for faith. It's changing your mind concerning Jesus Christ. They did not believe Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He just told them Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Then he tells them now, they said, what do we have to do? Well, you have to change your mind. Change your mind concerning what? Concerning who Jesus Christ is. You're willing to acknowledge that he's the Son of God risen from the dead? That would be constituting the repentance. But the word repent is plural. Repent, plural. So we could say with the southerner, you all repent. All right? You all repent. And then it changes from plural to singular. Now that's very, very important. Because the word baptize or be baptized is singular. What does that say then? It says, you all repent. Then let each one of you individually be baptized. And in the Greek, it requires a, a, a stop in the sense. In other words, what he said to them, if we were to say it in using English like he must have said it, they said, what shall we do? He said, repent. And then each one of you 
to evidence your repentance, be baptized. Do you notice the repentance was you, everybody had to do that? And right now, for salvation. But then each one of you individually should evidence that. You see, people could be, in this sense, uh, saved in mass. That is, a whole group of people at the same instantaneous moment could all make a decision that would get them into the family of God. Nothing was required. They didn't have to go through a class. They didn't have to understand a lot. All they had to do was simply believe that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, and that he died for their sins and he rose again from the grave. That's all they had. So they could all do that at once. So you all do that. Then, each one of you individually should evidence that by being baptized. Now, in the book of Acts, I think it's, it's very, very important to note, as I said already, that this generally was done very soon after salvation. People ask, what are the prerequisites for salvation? Or for baptism, I should say. Don't confuse the two. There are really two prerequisites for the matter of baptism. The first is that you be saved you're not saved, then baptism will get you wet, and that's all it'll do for you. It won't do another thing. It can't save you. It can't help save you. It can't keep you saved. It can't do anything concerning salvation. Your personal faith in Jesus Christ is it, period, all right? But what else, what else other prerequisite is? I think the only other prerequisite is that you understand what you're doing. Do you understand what you're doing? People say, when's a child old enough to be baptized? And I say to them, well, when he's old enough to understand what God says concerning the subject of baptism. We say, well, what if he has accepted Christ as his Savior and he knows he has? Shouldn't we get him into the tank as quick as possible? You know, because you know, people are still kind of afraid that they don't get him in that tank. Somehow they might miss something. You know, don't you believe it? The thing that's involved is that I talk to people all the time and I ask them, what do you understand is the meaning or why were you baptized? And you know the answers I get? Well, I was baptized because I had to join the church. Or I was baptized because uh, everybody said I had to be. Or I was baptized because, because uh, the Bible says you're supposed to be baptized, which is getting closer to the truth. But it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is baptism illustrates something. And if you don't understand what it illustrates, for goodness sakes, what are you doing? It's the same thing with the Lord's table. Remember, the Lord's table is a remembrance feast. If a person has nothing to remember... What would be the sense? It's like, it's like celebrating the 4th of July in England, you see. And the, the, the people in England, of course, lost that end of things. And so the 4th of July, to them, is kind of like a slap in the face. So you don't go around England waving your little flag on the 4th and uh, firing off your firecrackers. Because uh, they say that the people in England celebrate July 4th too, but they call it Thanksgiving Day. Um, but uh, that's really not true, you see. And the point is, the 4th of July, to them, is sort of a disgrace. 
To us, it's a time of celebration because it was a time for the Declaration of the Independence and all the good things that go along with it, you see? Now, because of that, if a person doesn't understand what he's doing, then why do it? And so therefore, I think it's a prerequisite that a person understand. Now, the thing that they did in the early church was they oriented them very quickly as to the meaning of it, they made sure they understood it, and then they were baptized. It was a part of the message. It's a part of our message. And when the text warrants it, we certainly mention it. But at the same time, it's not something to be harped upon or to make people feel like they're second-class citizen if the Lord has not brought them yet to that place where they felt that this is what they should do. It must be the impulsion of the Holy Spirit, not of men. All right, so the constraints of salvation, first of all, be baptized. Secondly, there was a constraint to testify. to testify. Let's look at a few passages. Acts 2.47. Acts 2.47. Praising God, and that, by the way, is a present tense word, keep on, keeping on praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. The time together was a time of fellowship in the church. The evangelism was done by the people because of their witness for Jesus Christ. Chapter 8. And verse 4, chapter 8 and verse 4, Therefore they were scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the word. That was because Saul of Tarsus was killing so many Christians. So they were scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the gospel. Evangelizing, literally, is the word there. Telling the good news. Chapter 9 and verse 20. And immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. That was the first thing Paul did after his conversion, after he'd come there to Damascus in his baptism. Right after he was baptized, he brought his first message. And you know, my friends, you may not get the chance to bring the message publicly, but after you've accepted Christ as your Savior, one of the first things you should do is tell somebody. It's so funny, you know. People think there's something so magical about your testimony to other people. And uh, uh, you're afraid you're, you don't have all your I's dotted and all your T's crossed. And you're afraid that you might make a, a theological faux pas. And uh, so you, you've got all of these things. So you say, well, I'm going to wait until I'm perfect, the perfect Christian and all the rest of it before I testify. And it's amazing, though. You get a new car and someone says, no, oh, you got a new car. And you say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, it's got uh, uh, rack and pinion steering. It's got this and it's got that. It's got the other thing. You've only had the thing a day, you know. And you've got all, these all this data, all these facts. And some of it may be a little fouled up in the process. But you're not afraid to talk about it because you're kind of proud of that car. And you see, we ought to have the same freedom in our testimony for Jesus Christ. I've never yet, when I've told somebody I like this car and so on and so forth, and here's the good points, I've never yet had a person say, don't talk to me about cars. I hate cars. You know? But you see, you're afraid that if you talk about Jesus Christ, that that's going to be the reaction. Most people, it is not the reaction. If you simply say, listen, this is real to me, let me share it with you, and tell them what Christ did for you. It should be that easy. That's what happened in the early church. That's why the early church was so effective. Chapter 18. Chapter 18 and verse 5. 
And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Look at verse 26 of the same chapter. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. That was, of course, Apollos. Chapter 26 of the book of Acts and verse 19. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, Paul says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the borders of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works fit for repentance. It was a tremendous constraint to testify and to witness concerning what Jesus Christ had accomplished in the life. And so that's a second thing. A third thing is, and this is very clear in the book of Acts as well, to show Christian love. Now our time's slipping away, but let's just quickly look at several passages. Acts chapter 2. This is another constraint of salvation. Acts chapter 2, verse 44. And all that believed were together and had all things common. That is, they shared in love one with another. Acts chapter 11, verses 27 and following. And in those days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. There stood up one of them named Agabus, signified by the Spirit that there should be great famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar, 41 to 45 A.D. in that time period. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren who dwelt in Judea, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Look at chapter 15 and verse 36. And some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. Just interested in people, interested in them as individuals and constraining them to go to them and find out how they are. Chapter 18 and verse 23. And after he spent some time there, he departed and went all over the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Part of that constraint to go out and show Christian love involved the sharing of the message that would build their lives as well. And then in chapter uh, 21 and verse 20, And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou knewest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And all are informed of thee, that thou teachest all Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do, therefore, this that we say to thee. We have four men who have a vow upon them. Take them, or them take and purify thyself with them, pay their expenses, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning thee are nothing. But thou art thyself also walkest orderly, and keepest the law. 
As touching the Gentiles who believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing except only that they keep themselves from things offered from idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took the men the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until an offering should be offered for every one of them. Now the thing that happened here was that the Apostle Paul was willing to sacrifice, willing to spend himself in order to show his love for his brother. And so there was a constraint to show Christian love. Last of all, there was a constraint to restrict liberty. And that, I think, is what we saw last week in Acts chapter 15. Again, there were Christian brethren who it seemed good to them to simply restrict their liberty. Now, we have other passages. The ending chapters in the book of Romans, chapters 15 and 16, the book of Romans deals with this subject of the weaker brother. And also we have it in 1 Corinthians. We have a number of passages in the epistles that talk about our willingness to restrict our liberty. Because liberty does not mean license, and we should be willing to restrict our liberty for the sake of others. These are some of the constraints that come because a person is really born again into the family of God. And so the matter of salvation was made clear that it was merely by faith and faith alone that there, were, there was nothing to add to the matter of salvation at all. It was simply a matter of trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you're here tonight and you've never made that commitment to Jesus Christ, tonight, right where you are, you can repent. That is, you can change your mind. You can say, yes, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died for me personally. And thereby, you can become a child of God as well. But some of you tonight as well, as you have opportunities to disciple others, let's be careful that we do not confuse the issues of salvation. Salvation is by faith and faith alone. Certainly there are constraints to the salvation. That is, when a person accepts Christ, it is natural. They want to exhibit that by testimony, by Christian love, by even restraining from liberty, by baptism. And that he might just share with others the reality of Jesus Christ in his own life. But that has nothing to do with salvation. That's something that comes as a result of salvation. Let's be careful that we don't confuse the issue as we witness to others. Let's teach them that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your provision for us. We thank you for this concluding time that we have had and we pray as we pick up the sense of all of this in the fall that you will help us to learn more and more of that which you have provided in your son Jesus Christ. Grant that we might have then just a, a rich and full time during the months of July and August as we view the films, as we hear the panel discussion, as we, we learn more about our own culture on the backdrop of the absolute truth of your word. Grant to us then a special time in these things. We'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.